It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day there, Mark Kenny with another Democracy Sausage Extra from ANU's Australian Studies Institute, the School of Politics and International Relations, and the Crawford School of Public Policy, where my guest today is a visiting fellow among many other achievements. Peter Martin, AM, is an economist, former Treasury official, long-term economics editor for The Age, and these days business and economy editor at The Conversation. Peter, thanks for taking time out of what is no doubt a pressure cooker day for you. It is. Uh, So it's official now, really, that uh, the coalition has led us uh, through this crisis so far, and we are in a world of debt and deficit. The same party that used to talk to us about the debt and deficit disaster uh, that we were supposedly uh, sailing towards or saddled with under the the previous Labor government uh, has really made that look like a bit of a dog and pony show compared to uh, to the levels of uh, of debt and deficit that we're now talking about. Uh, how do you think they're uh, going explaining this? They're explaining it in exactly the language Labor would have used if it had thought of it. So uh, Matthias Cormann, the finance minister, Australia's longest serving finance minister, who's about to bow out of the job, actually, but uh, he, um, he explained it this way. He said, um, what I'll tell you now are my words and what, what I'll quote for you in a minute are his words, but the best way to get on top of big debt is to run up more debt. Now, the way he put it was, quote, the way to get on top of this debt is by growing the economy more strongly, creating opportunities for Australians to get ahead, get into jobs, better paying jobs, because stronger growth leads to more revenue, lower welfare payments, and that's the way we can get back to where we were. Now, a lot of what's happened to the economy, it's detailed in the document today, which is the essentially uh, a mini-budget, updating uh, things uh, 
because we would have had a budget by this time had it not been postponed. Uh, what <coughs> the government has been faced with is a number of things over which they had no control. Personal income tax collections have collapsed. We know why. People have been at home. Business uh, company tax collections have uh, collapsed. GST revenue has collapsed. Income from super funds, uh, super taxes, are expected to halve next year. Now, in that situation, the government is obviously pushed into uh, a deficit, a big deficit. Now, they could live with that or they could decide to raise more money which would be a disaster at the moment. That would uh, get households to spend less. Or they can do the exact opposite, and that's double down and spend big, really big, JobKeeper and Enhanced JobSeeker, uh, all of that. Uh, it's um, uh, $6 billion in the last financial year, the one that uh, finished uh, at the end of last month, uh, $12 billion in the next. That, that's its extra spending. That's making the deficit... Worse, making borrowing bigger. But uh, what we've traditionally seen, we saw it most clearly um, after the Second World War, the government ran up debt because of an emergency. It ran it up to more than 100% of GDP. But that spending resulted in fast economic growth. And in every year after the Second World War, for uh, about 30 years, government debt as a proportion of GDP fell. Not government debt, but the economy grew so fast that it became easier and easier to repay. That's this government's strategy. And uh, Matthias Cormann has articulated it better than uh, Wayne Swan, uh, Kevin Rudd uh, did during the global financial crisis. That's their strategy. Yes, it is a strategy they criticised, but it's a strategy they've embraced. How seriously should we take it, though? Because we've we've had uh, you know growth... Everyone knows the story about, you know, three decades of unbroken growth as, as it's been uh, trumpeted by both sides at various times. You know, it's it's been a, a kind of a singular Australian achievement, really, to avoid at least that technical recession over a very extended period of time. But we've also had fairly pale growth. We know we've had uh, very flat wages growth. It's been a difficult slog. And uh, you know, there's been a sense that the economy is kind of almost structurally in some sort of slow lane. So notwithstanding the stimulus effect of all this money, how realistic is it to be banking on, you know, suddenly not just getting growth back to trend, but even back to 1% or, or so above trend growth, as the government has outlined before? Is that is that pie in the sky or is it actually achievable? It's a very good question. Economic growth has normally been at around 3% a year, okay? Uh, recently, it seems that the ability of the, the economy to, to grow, the ability of people to make more things given the same resources has fallen somewhat. Uh, the Treasury's most recent uh, estimate a few years back was that we had a capacity to grow, a capacity to get richer of 2.5% per year, which, by the way, adds up. We know a lot about compound interest now because uh, of the uh, coronavirus and the effects of compounding there. That's pretty good. Now, can that be achieved now it is the other question. And it, it depends, I suppose, on the sort of things that permanently hold people back. Now, having said that, uh, you know, coronavirus restrictions hold people back. Um, having said that, and, and, you know, ongoing predictions, um, the government can borrow 
at around 1% per year, certainly for 10 years. Uh, next week, the government releases its first 30-year bond. Not its first 30-year bond, its first 30-year bond in a long time, first one in this crisis. That bond, that money it borrows, won't need to be repaid to 31-year bond until 2051, by which time climate change will be well advanced, by which time uh, you and I and most people listening will have had grandchildren, right? So it can borrow without needing to repay until until kingdom come, until way beyond the foreseeable future. That's what it's going to do next week. So concerned is it that this uh, uh, work, if you like, that it's appointed five lead managers, that's five sales agents, the ANZ, the Commonwealth Bank, Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan, UBS, all trying to move. Uh, the, the amount of money is unclear at the moment. They'll see what the demand is, but all trying to move money that they won't need to repay, uh, uh, try to move loans, they won't need to repay for 30 years. Now, if the interest rate is around 1%, we don't know yet, uh, but uh, the interest rate for 10-year bonds has been around 1%, the economy only needs to grow 1% a year, slightly more than 1%, um, for that debt not to, uh, if you like, the interest payments not to uh, feed on themselves and it to grow as a proportion of GDP. If the economy did grow by 2% per year, say if it grew by 3%, as it once used to, um, that debt, or rather the repayment uh, each year, those obligations would shrink year by year. The advantage the government has is that there are so many investors, usually these Bond issues are uh, three to five percent oversubscribed. There are so many investors so desperate for a secure government income that they'll take one percent and uh, regard that as better than investing in a company or something that might actually make money. That's how concerned, uh, if you like, that the, this is our super funds uh, as well as foreign super funds. The pool of international money is it wants safety. And because of those low rates that they're uh, prepared to accept, the government will probably be all right. That is to say, the debt won't feed it itself. We, we, we only need uh, fairly minimal interest rate growth uh, for them to be able to manage it. It's an unusual situation, and that's why the government next week is going to try and lock it in for 31 years. Well, it's really quite remarkable, though, isn't it, uh, the extent to which they have shifted their rhetoric and their kind of ideological presentation, because if we were to take them from their, their you know, their oft-repeated protestations back during the GFC and in the years that followed, debt was uh, ipso facto bad. You know, it was uh, it was a sign that you weren't managing the economy well. Certainly, deficits were uh, were a sign that you you couldn't be trusted managing money. That was the sort of argument that Tony Abbott and Joe Hockey and let's remember uh, Matthias Cormann, the current, as you say, well, outgoing finance. Was actually he was the shadow finance minister in the lead up to the 2013 election that brought the coalition to power. He repeated this theme over and over again. Exactly the opposite theme to what his uh, successor, the man who actually became the finance minister, uh, Matthias Cormann, exactly the opposite theme. He talked about uh, our grandchildren, he talked about uh, you know debt growing, which it shouldn't, uh, by the way, under, under the current circumstances, uh, as if it was an inevitability. 
Now, we used to sit together, Mark, I, mm-hmm. I can share in the, the office of the Age newspaper in, in Parliament House. And I don't know if we've ever had this conversation, but I've had it with several people. And uh, the, the people have said, well, what would the coalition have done were they actually in uh, an economic crisis? Were, was the uh, the global financial crisis, uh, if it had happened on their watch, what would they have done? My reply was always to colleagues exactly what Labor did. And uh, we've got the proof of the pudding now. They're, they're, they're better at explaining it and they've probably got more leeway with the public, but uh, they're adopting exactly the same kind of approach, spending big to keep money in the economy, to keep household spending. Um, I never doubted that they would because they have excellent advisers and in a crisis... Governments follow their advisors, or at least Australian governments do. Yes, well, those advisors, of course, were Treasury, although we've seen since that Ken Henry has admitted that uh, that Kevin Rudd was perhaps ahead of him in terms of understanding what was unfolding with uh, Bear Stearns and, and um, you know, the, 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 the makings of the global financial crisis in the US, that Rudd was uh, more worried about it than perhaps even Treasury was in terms of its role on effect. So it's an interesting proposition you put. Uh, the other thing we can say that counters against your proposition, which, by the way, I suspect is correct, but um, the other thing we can say is that um, when Malcolm Turnbull was um, commenting on this, and certainly when he was commenting it once once they were in government, he always uh, argued that uh, that Labor had spent too much. That the first stimulus package might have been justified, but after that, it all was a you know a matter of excess. Um, so, I think people are entitled to say that they might not have spent as much, and that they might not have been as successful. Well, with the benefit of hindsight, Mark. Uh, but uh, people did not have the benefit of hindsight. You never do. The present, yeah, the, the present Secretary of the Treasury, Stephen Kennedy, worked in Kevin Rudd's office at that time, and uh, which is, by the way, a tribute to Australia, a tribute to the Morrison government, that um, you can have senior people advising them now who were advising Labor. On the uh, on the policies that uh, that Labor opposed, um, he uh, he also you know, described to me uh, Kevin Rudd's amazing ability to assimilate uh, assimilate information and uh, make the right decisions. Um, although he said that uh, Rudd was a, he thought Rudd was a bit lost uh, after the crisis because <laughs> Rudd kept wanting uh, kept uh, being in crisis mode, but. Uh, in, in the moment, uh, the judgment was very good. The people in the Treasury and other departments have learned from that crisis. At the time of that crisis, we hadn't had a recession for 20 years. What uh, the government did, what the Treasury did, together with uh, other parts of the government, it uh, had a weekend away, Ken Henry, the, the former head's instigation, and they war-gamed what would happen in various types of crises worked out with the Reserve Bank how they would keep money flowing, how they would keep financial markets operating. So it's fortunate that they did that uh, a few years before the global financial crisis in 2008. Uh, This time, though, they have very recent memory of actually handling a crisis. They know what worked and they know what didn't. And they also know that you shouldn't fight the last war. So um, the last crisis, 
was uh, uh, formed by, uh, caused by, by uh, uh, the, the effect of it was a big drop in consumer spending, and uh, so they handed out cash, so much so that uh, it had to be staged suburb by suburb to ensure that each a group of ATMs, uh, automatic teller machines, had enough money in them. They handed out uh, uh, checks of $800, uh, $900 uh, at a time. This crisis is different. This crisis has been caused, or the, the effect of it, is that businesses aren't able to keep people in work uh, because they don't have enough revenue. And so the government has, or, or indeed because uh, you know the business can't operate, so the government has tried to keep people attached to their employers. It's, it's been a different approach, but it is informed by a, a very recent handling of, uh, of a real crisis. Now, what about the, um, let's look at some of the numbers. The jobless rate is set to go to, what, 9.25% by Christmas. Yeah. That's the official jobless rate. Uh, let's talk about that number. What, what Does that surprise you? Um, it's obviously going to be a pretty tough uh, Christmas period for many people. I don't think the unemployment rate makes much sense. Um, and we saw this in the US. The US... Uh, during what, what for us was a global financial crisis uh, in the US was the Great Recession. And afterwards, the US uh, quickly got back to fairly low unemployment rates, which looked good. But uh, if you looked at the employment to population ratio, that is the proportion of people working, you'll find that uh, it's been pretty bad. And that's because a whole lot of people in a crisis not only lose their jobs, but also lose their hope of working. And so... To be unemployed, to be in that percentage, the percentage of people unemployed over the percentage of people, over the number of people, the number of people unemployed over the number of people both unemployed and employed, to be unemployed, you need to regard yourself as having a hope of having work. In the US, a lot of people in uh, low-skilled jobs not only lost the jobs but lost any hope of getting them. And so went on and did other things. They, they might have become disability pensioners. They, they might have relied on their wives, their children, uh, or some other form of support. And, and so the figures look artificially good. We're seeing a lot of that now. The figures are looking artificially good because people are thinking, there's no point in regarding myself as unemployed. But, I mean, the question the Bureau of Statistics asks in its survey is, in the last fortnight, have you searched for work? Now, that question by itself, in the present circumstances, is going to push down the proportion of people saying they were unemployed. Um, and then if you add the 3 million people whose jobs are there, I've heard you of JobKeeper for the moment. As JobKeeper is uh, phased down, some of those people will be let go. And as the requirements are tightened, the government announced a tightening of requirements uh, this week. It will take place uh, at the end of September and uh, again at the end of January. Um, uh, as people go off that, uh, they'll permanently lose their jobs. So those figures, uh, 9%, 9.25%, .5 by the end of the year, way understate the uh, horrific nature of what's happened to jobs. Now, my fear is that the forecasts in this document, this economic statement, also way understate um, what's going to happen. All uh, budgets need assumptions. Mm -hmm. and their assumption is that there are no further uh, outbreaks of 
coronavirus. Now, they've assumed the Victorian lockdown lasts for six weeks, and they've assumed that's the end of it. Now, um, uh, I'm not a betting person, but I don't think that's a very safe bet. There's a section in the document called Risks Forecasts. It usually goes off the pages. It's very terse. It's just three paragraphs, and it says the risks are uh, far harder to work out than normal, and there'll be a fuller account in the budget, which will be in October this year. So I, in the very best scenario, you'll get an official unemployment rate of around 10%. The reality, in terms of people not working or at least not working uh, for employers who are paying them out of their own pocket, will be much worse, and the likelihood of something going wrong is extremely high. And the, the budget, uh, when it comes out in October, will have uh, projections over four years. The likelihood of things continuing to go wrong over four years is very, very high. I regard the numbers in today's document as an absolute best-case scenario. Let's take a quick break there and be back in a moment. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, when we were just before the break, we were talking about the possibly the optimism in this document, in this statement. Now, the statement itself, of course, is atypical coming out at this time. Uh, and we know the budget has been delayed until October 6, where there will be a, a much more full accounting of these things. And as you were just saying, Peter Martin, um, there'll be, you know, the standard four-year uh, figures uh, rather than the just two years we've got uh, in this statement, the financial year we've just had and the financial year we've just begun. Uh, so that's going to be interesting. And you were making the point that um, there are some assumptions underpinning even these numbers you know, which could be described as optimistic uh, in terms of, for example, Victoria coming out of that lockdown in four weeks' time. It, it's an interesting variable in itself because we're in the middle of that lockdown now. It's It's been going for two weeks. The numbers uh, that have come out at the same time as, as uh, Josh Frydenberg and Matthias Cormann were unveiling this showed that there was another 403, I think it was, um, infections, new infections uh, in the previous 24 hours, another five deaths in Victoria. Uh, now, that's not an exponential increase. In fact, it's a lower number than the uh, the day before, but it is nonetheless a very significant worry. And people in Victoria seem to think that there's a fairly strong likelihood that that its 
lockdown could be extended. Now, we're talking about an economy that's worth 20 25%, the Victorian economy of the uh, of the national economy, and, of course, the possibility of, uh, of setbacks in other states as well. So is that the biggest vulnerability that you see in these numbers, uh, the, the coronavirus itself? Yes. Uh, it, it's not quite true that they haven't taken into account the, the effect of Victoria, because I might have... Uh, well, it's really Melbourne, uh, the Mornington Peninsula, um, uh, and the Mitchell Shire. Um, it's not quite true that they haven't taken that into account. Um, they say that, uh, that they have taken into account, quote, the effect of the Melbourne outbreak on consumer confidence and activity in the rest of Australia. In other words, on how glum that makes people in the rest of the country feel, um, which is something. What they haven't uh, uh, taken into account a further lockdowns in uh, Melbourne or further spot lockdowns anywhere else. Now, um, no one can know whether there will be any further lockdowns anywhere else. But, uh, you know, the, the history of the, the outbreak so far, so certainly what, what we're seeing in the US, is that there, there, there'll be spot outbreaks all over the place. In a way, this doesn't matter. It matters for the numbers, but... Uh, not for the government's action. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has said he will do whatever is necessary. And uh, in the press conference, they, Matthias Cormann, the finance minister, sort of turned the question back on the questioner and said, well, um, who asked, why are you spending all of this money? He said, well, what is the alternative? So whatever is needed will be spent. Now, on the financing side that we were talking about before, and be raising money for uh, 31 years, that they have a fallback. The uh, Reserve Bank has undertaken to buy whatever government bonds are needed. And by the way, it's hardly needed to do that because uh, private uh, investors have been so keen. It's only needed to spend $40 billion on buying bonds. But uh, it'll buy as much as is needed to keep interest rates at their current low level. It does this by uh, creating money. If you saw this week the weekly with uh, Charlie Pickering, you would have seen uh, their uh, economics correspondent, uh, Luke is his name, uh, gave uh, a fairly colourful and uh, uh, accurate uh, description of what the uh, Reserve Bank does. It's, uh, it's an accounting thing. It uh, says to the government, you have these bonds. The bond, by the way, is... Uh, is a, a piece of paper, which is a promise to repay. You have these bonds that you're uh, anxious to move. We will buy so many billion of them, and they put that in one column as an asset, and uh, they make a deposit in the Reserve Bank's account at the Commonwealth Bank that's in the, the other uh, column and, uh, so, uh, the liability because it can be withdrawn, and there you are. Bingo. They've created money. So far, they've only needed to create $40 billion. But they've said they stand ready to create as much as is needed. All of Australia's borrowing is done in, all of the Australian government's borrowing is done in Australian dollars, which means uh, the Reserve Bank has no limit on the extent to which it can advance money, because it can, in that uh, accounting uh, method I described, create Australian dollars. It's done so. Um, it hadn't needed uh, to do so before. Now it didn't do so in the global financial crisis, but it's done so to the tune of 40 billion. It is prepared to 
do as much as is necessary to keep interest rates at the present level. So with the Reserve Bank preparing, prepared to fund, the government prepared to do whatever is necessary, because as uh, the Finance Minister and Piers Gorman has pointed out, um, it's the only way out of the only way out of uh, debt, or the best way out of debt, is to increase your income. The best way for the government to increase its income is to have people working and spending again. And the best way to do that is to run further into debt, push money into their hands, or, or spend money that will keep their relationship uh, with their employer intact. Um, and on infrastructure projects, that's one of the next things coming up. Um, it's sort of phase two, or could be. Uh, that sort of thing. Um, given that situation, uh, even though things are worse, uh, things are likely to be worse than, than forecast here, the government's response will be the same. The government's response is, is basically to spend whatever is necessary. So if the government can spend as much as is needed in service of that objective of protecting the economy, we know that the uh, the debt level is about to go through the $850 billion cap that, uh, that was legislated and the government's going to seek uh, the parliament's approval to go through that cap. We're heading towards, I guess, therefore, a psychologically impressive, if nothing else, trillion-dollar debt. That's not something now that uh, seems to worry anyone. No, um, times have changed. I mean, Japan's debt is and has been for 20 or so years now more than 100% of GDP and uh, government debt. And it's still a, uh, a reasonable place to live with, a reasonable um, functioning government. Um, there is no alternative. The, 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 you might say, well, look, if the government's revenue has collapsed, it should stop spending and raise more tax. That would be a disaster. Some people have been silly enough to talk about increases in the GST. If anything, they should be cutting the GST right now. You do not want to do anything to make it harder for, uh, for people to spend. Although, interestingly, there was uh, an idea raised by an author of uh, Conversation uh, website that maybe the government should uh, cut GST for a while, six months, and then promise to slowly increase it afterwards in order to, to bring forward spending so that people would buy um, big items now. But the government can't afford to cut its own spending. Its own spending is what's holding the economy up, it's what's keeping people in jobs, and it can't afford to raise taxes. The only alternative is to go into debt. Fortunately, that, that, that can be easily funded, and um, it will have to do it until the day that uh, people are working. We, what matters, um, and this is what uh, is sort of um, a more advanced um, economic understanding um, recognises, money doesn't matter. Money is pieces of paper. What matters are resources, the resources Australia has, the ones in the ground, and the ability of people to work. And if we use those resources, then uh, we can have quite a nice standard of living because people work and provide the services we need, the foreign money uh, we need to import things. If we don't use those resources properly, if we allow people to be unused, if we allow 10% of the workforce who are able to work, not to work, not to make things for us, we're impoverishing ourselves. Money is a means of trying to make sure that happens. Money is not what matters. What matters are resources. 
And uh, uh, going into debt is a very worthwhile thing if it ensures that uh, we're actually able to use our resources. Now, work is good for its own sake. Uh, a lot of people like working, but uh, it's also good because uh, it's what gives us our standard of living. Well, what do you say then to those people, and there have been a few voices arguing this in recent times, that uh, that argue that um, what we're doing now is saddling future generations with a crippling debt that will limit their life chances, that will narrow their options, that will reduce living standards in the future because of this, this crippling level of debt that we're running up right now? I suppose what I say is that the level of debt, crippling or not, is being run up precisely in order to increase living standards. Now, uh, usually, living standards uh, grow by about uh, 80% every 20 years. They, they almost double. Now, lower economic growth, that mightn't happen. But um, I think it's true to say that you and I, everyone listening here, has a higher standard of living than they did after the Second World War uh, when, uh, when uh, if you like, that debt had been run up, when the government debt was run up to 100%, uh, of GDP, more than 100% of GDP. GDP is just an annual uh, measure. It's uh, an absolute measure. Um, uh, that resulted in very high economic growth, sustained high economic growth for decades, and that increased living standards. Now, um, Australia's government debt should, it was, by the way, projected to uh, shrink as a proportion of GDP before this came along. It should shrink again if the economy grows fast. It's just an equation. GDP is at the bottom, that's the amount produced every year. The amount of debt is at the top. There are two ways of bringing it down. One is to uh, find some way of reducing the debt. The other is to find some way of increasing GDP, increasing uh, income. That's the way that uh, this has usually been done. That's the way our debt to GDP has fallen in the past. And uh, it looks as if, with uh, the government locking in low interest rates for a very long time, the uh, annual interest payments uh, won't be very burdensome either. I think they work out to about $16.4 billion this financial year, uh, debt repayment. So it's a, you know, it's a significant line item in the budget, but uh, the point you make is a, a very good one. Uh, I can't help but think you know, the situation might be different if the uh, parties were reversed. I'm not sure the coalition would be so eager to allow Labor to uh, engage in arguments about, um, you know, increasing the size of the economy and using the Reserve Bank's powers to uh, to buy bonds and, and so forth. I notice uh, just as we're speaking that Kevin Rudd has uh, issued a text, a tweet, uh, and I'll just read it to you just uh, for the uh, sheer entertainment value of it. He says, the numbers don't lie. Morrison and the Murdoch party finally and formally admit their entire decade-long debt and deficit campaign against our government was a lie from beginning to end. I think it's fairly clear we can see um, there's still some uh, uh, fairly strong um, resentment from, from Kevin Rudd uh, about uh, the, you know, the, the campaign run against his government during the GFC, as you talked about. What this raises, though, interestingly, uh, Peter Martin, is is this question, 
Should the government, in fact, be now using this opportunity to borrow more, to in fact go further into debt? As you say, uh, five-year money, as the Treasurer made the point today at the press conference, is available at at rate of just 0.4%, and 10-year money is, uh, is, as you say, just under 1%. So it's uh, these are extremely favourable conditions for, for borrowing. Yeah, I think the government can do better than that. Um, yes, it can uh, to finance large infrastructure projects. A lot of what the government does, by the way, doesn't need much money. Now, we've, we've got a, a three-stage sort of recovery. The, the first stage is uh, supporting businesses, uh, supporting people. That's what the government's doing, jump keeper, jump safety, coronavirus supplement. The next stage is spending on projects that will, if you like, um, boost the economy, not just maintain and boost the economy. But a lot of that can be done cheaply. You see, if the government comes in, uh, say the government was to do a Brisbane uh, to Melbourne railway, for instance, um, they wouldn't need to raise all of that money themselves. They would need to say, we have committed to doing this. Now, we're going to subcontract out this firm, this firm, this firm. They can keep this much of the revenue. We'll guarantee that. And if you like, leverage the um, unique characteristics of the government to give other businesses confidence to take part. So that needn't be that expensive. Also, of course, it's important that what you spend money on is actually worthwhile. Now, there's a lot we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen to population growth. We used to know. We don't know what's going to happen to immigration. We don't know what's going to happen to the size of our cities. We don't know what's going to happen to the need for a Brisbane to Melbourne railway. Um, so making sure that the, the projects aren't white elephants is uh, is important, but also it can be done cheaply. The third phase is, if you like, uh, economic reform, to try and do things better. This is industrial relations uh, reform, uh, things to try and boost productivity. That needn't cost money either. So I'm not certain that the government needs to borrow much more after it's got it is through stage one, um, certainly it should borrow for things which are worthwhile. We run the, the, the risk of having some cities with better infrastructure than they need uh, just because population growth will be so much lower, or we think population growth will be so much lower than anyone thought. Yes, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Um, what about Iron ore prices, uh, is that uh, an area where the government is vulnerable, where this budget is vulnerable? I know that in my EFO it um, factored in a, a, a price of $55 per tonne uh, and uh, Josh Frydenberg made the point that it's approached more like $100 a tonne. You know, that's a mistake governments have made in the past. Is this government predicating any of its numbers on the higher um, returns from that or is it sticking with the um, the conservative figure and hoping to take some windfall gains? The government is assuming no further increase in the iron ore price. It's assuming $110, which is an increase, but allows a, a lot of room for a further increase. Now, the increase could happen because China decides, as it decided after the global financial crisis, to spend big on their infrastructure, buildings and so on. But the government hasn't baked in a further increase. The, the assumptions seem fairly uh, conservative. Um, but uh, we will see. If, if you had asked me where I think the biggest uh, 
a doubt in these budget numbers is the biggest doubt is about further lockdowns and, uh, and so on, rather than the iron ore price, which is, if you like, unknowable in the sense that it could be higher or it could be lower. I, I think the situation with lockdowns is um, they could be as forecast or the situation could be a lot worse. What about the what what about if I could interrupt you there? Sorry. Uh, what about the prospect? Not so much of it getting worse in Australia, but of it getting perhaps perish the thought exponentially worse in other places in our major trading partners, for example. You know, global economic further deterioration or crash, and the impact on Australia in that regard is that a significant risk factor here? I mean, I noticed that Anthony Fauci, the um, the American equivalent of our chief medical officer, not that he's uh, treated with any respect by Donald Trump, but I think he said that uh, he's not even sure that we're halfway through this, um, you know, this severe ec- epidemic or pandemic. Um, so, w- what about the global variables here? We've survived very low global economic growth before because growth in one country has been high. That was China. And we're probably in the same situation again. China's uh, our largest customer. We, we sell most things to that one country. So that, or we sell more things to that one country than anyone else uh, by, by quite a big margin. So uh, if China is all right, and, and China has um, uh, managed its economy uh, terribly well, notwithstanding uh, you know, possibly justified critiques from this government and uh, other governments about its, uh, its uh, stance uh, in other ways, it's managed its economy quite well. I think it's more what happens to China that will affect Australia than uh, what happens to the global uh, economy generally. It's, it's really hard to tell. And I suppose the, the, the Treasury is quite right to just have a very short section in the budget about risks. As I said, three paragraphs which uh, uh, basically can be summed up by throwing your hands in the air and saying, we don't know, after <laughs> again in October. <laughs> yeah, uh, no one would want to be a forecaster at the moment. Uh, the odds are that um, with everything changing so quickly, uh, you just you just don't know. And that's going to be quite a challenge even uh, going to that uh, to that October budget. One one final question, and that is uh, also on an unknowable, but a feature of our performance through this crisis has been the dialing down of politics and the dialing up of problem solving, both in our institutional politics, but also in uh, in the relations between employers and employees, between bosses and unions. The ACTU and the government, of course, have uh, forged a kind of a new cooperative relationship and we've seen this commitment to look at these five uh, task groups uh, uh, for reform. When he was asked about the sorts of levers that might be pulled to drive this productivity and this this uh, economic growth that uh, that you've been talking about and that the government is relying on to to reduce the the debt to gdp ratio uh, josh frydenberg nominated industrial relations flexibility or, or flexibility in the workplace as quote first cab off the rank now there's already some tension growing in this relationship we know dan andrews in victoria is um quite rightly pointing to the disincentives that are in the system at the moment for people for you know the vast number of people in the casualized workforce for them 
to get tested and uh, and and to self isolate there's a disincentive there in the sense that they lose shifts and therefore they lose money and potentially they lose their job if you're not saying yes to shifts when you're in when you're part of this precariat uh, then you know you potentially don't get asked again so we know that um that industrial relations issues are starting to come to the fore as the economy does recover do you expect this to become an ongoing problem for the government this this you know will we see the spirit of cooperation recede and the spirit of of interest protection perhaps return i don't think we will for a long time i don't think we will for we're very clearly out of this that the government and the trade union movement have established extremely good lines of communication they weren't there before um and I see them being so focused on outcomes that uh, we're likely to, in a crisis, I think people uh, develop common sense. We're likely to be in a crisis for quite a long time. So I think these talks, the uh, the five-party discussions uh, on industrial relations that are taking place are likely to get to something. Um, If we think back to the um, mid-'80s, it was inconceivable that uh, trade unions would agree to restrain wages, and they did. Admittedly, it was a, a Labor leader, Bob Hawke, um, uh, in place at the time. Uh, in the early 90s, it was inconceivable uh, until Paul Keating made it happen that we would move away from centralised wage setting to workplace by workplace wage setting. Wage setting could even cut across the, the, the normal role of uh, Unions, which are uh, industry by industry rather than firm by firm. Yet he made that happen and the union movement accepted it. It turned out to be excellent for productivity because uh, in each workplace you could nominate ways uh, to make things better and uh, the uh, uh, workers and uh, the company owners could uh, share the dividends. Um, That's run its course because you you can't keep improving uh, the workplace uh, at the rate you can start improving it, and uh, there'll need to be uh, other uh, other means of uh, doing things. But uh, I don't think you could fault the flexibility, the willingness of the union movement to um, uh, embrace uh, reform, to, to see the sense of uh, suggestions, especially in a crisis. And as long as there is a crisis, and this crisis might last the uh, chief scientist of the World Health Organization this week nominated three years, so as a sort of minimum, this crisis will last for a while, um, you're likely to see the government uh, not being keen, members of the government not being as keen to sort of uh, uh, attack old enemies, but uh, rather looking for solutions. So um, I, I, certainly the, the history of the crisis to date leads me to be uh, optimistic. I I look around uh, everywhere and I I see nothing but goodwill. And, you know, Mark, it it wasn't like that last year in this country, right? No, that's true, but... That's true, Peter. But of course, in the uh, in the eighties and in the nineties, there were significant dividends to be traded uh, to to unions for this. The dividend uh, employers employees get uh, out of uh, 
making concessions at the moment is, 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 I guess, just to keep their job, just to hold their position. And so uh, it's, it's, it, it will be interesting to watch that. Look, I know I said I, that was the last question, but I've got one very quick uh, other one that uh, I just want to get your response to. I saw Danielle Wood from the Grattan Institute making the point that the schedule of, of, of um, withdrawing, of, of winding down JobKeeper and certainly of scaling back JobSeeker is going to have its own significant uh, impact on the on the macro economy in terms of the money that is being withdrawn, the money that is going in at the rate of some what is it, eighteen billion dollars a a month at the moment, uh, that that's going to be withdrawn, and it will be quite a significantly less amount of money on the government's figures being pumped into the economy in the first quarter of next year, and certainly in the second quarter of next year, uh, than is the case at the moment. Bearing in mind what you've said about this being a long term crisis. Are you worried about that? Do you think the the government might need to make adjustments to that? Could could they, like Victoria's gone back into a lockdown, could the government actually get forced into ratcheting up some of that assistance again next next year if there are um, if there's a case to do so? Yes, and I expect them to. So um, th- these are very rapid uh, withdrawals, just in terms of the number of people on job seeking, sixty percent. By uh, 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 cut, they expect by December, a further 10% on, on top of that uh, by the end of March next year, as well as that the job seeker uh, rate or now rates, it's a uh, two tier level depending whether you're part time or full time, are lower. Um, that's a very rapid withdrawal. Now, it might be okay. If it's not, I have full confidence in uh, the government to uh, uh, come back to it. They've, They've said they'll do that. They don't want um, unemployment to rise. They obviously don't want to have to keep employing themselves a large proportion of the workforce forever. But uh, I, this isn't the last adjustment. They'll, they'll continue to come back and adjust things. And, uh, yeah, I do think that what they announced this week was uh, a bit of a stretch um, in withdrawing support. Also. Thanks very much, Peter Martin. It's been absolutely terrific talking to you on this very busy day, a historic day really, because it's been the day in which an Australian government has announced that uh, uh, we haven't seen uh, debt levels like this since the Second World War. Very unique circumstances we find ourselves in and uh, really appreciate your spending some time to give us some context about all of that. Thanks, Peter. A huge pleasure, Mark. And thank you for listening to Democracy Sausage Extra. I'll be back on Monday evening, I guess, about the time that uh, it uh, it drops into your inbox if you're a subscriber for the regular Democracy Sausage. Until then, bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.